0: Hello and welcome everybody, uh, this is Dr. Tully for History 302. I'll give you a second to go to Moodle and get your uh, PowerPoint for today. Uh, this one is the uh, the final lecture of the semester, um, The Geek Shall Inherit the Earth, Internet and in Video Games. Internet and video games, uh, kind of modern, also talking about how the end of the monoculture, so go on and pull up the PowerPoint for The Geek Shall Inherit the Earth, we'll get going. Well, the first thing we have to talk about, if you go over one slide, is the arcade. Uh, the arcade is a concept which is a lot older than you might think. Uh, the first arcade is the penny arcade. If you go over one slide, you're going to see an example of one of these penny arcades. Uh, the term arcade is actually incredibly old. It's an architecture thing, it, it just literally means arch or archway. Um, so, its first meaning was the area outside of a building, kind of like a promenade or something, promenade, just this kind of area outside. Theoretically, um, it's an arcade is something that's outside of a building, um, typically usually open air, but it's like covered, but it's outside of like the, the proper uh, building itself, kind of like a open air archway or something. Uh, the concept, as we know it, however, comes into vogue in the early 20th century alongside amusement parks and the like. If you go over one slide, you'll see another one of these early arcade things. Um, actually, that's a pretty good example of an early skee ball machine, also. There's there's really no like one solitary pioneer individual figure behind it like a PT Barn or something. Um it's one of those things that just kind of mushroomed alongside of everything else going on. Uh, particularly when you talk about like Coney Island, the boardwalk. Um England actually has some of the oldest um like arcade game of chance things. Um they're called penny arcades because the standard price was a penny. That's the standard price for these uh the cabinets, and they weren't really games per se. Um some of them, there are more novelties. I would use the term novelty. A lot of these things are things like peep shows, uh, non-pornographic peep shows. I should mention they're not pornographic by any means. Uh, but the idea of like kind of an early, almost like an early movie player, where like you pay a penny and like you spin the little dial and you'll watch like you know man sneezing for ten seconds, and yeah, you feel like you get your money's worth. Uh, likewise, a thing like a love tester. You've probably seen these in, in old restaurants this idea of a love tester where you squeeze the handle and you see like how affectionate you are not really games per se um the scandal though however comes with slot machines the scandal comes with slot machines um they're advertised to be games but they're quickly revealed to be gambling um, this actually leads to a lot of crusades against arcades saying that basically they are deviant they are bad they are you know having people lose their money uh gambling has always been something in the united states which has been viewed fairly Lowbrow, especially when once it came out that um, slot machines were indeed gambling and they weren't just you know wholesome fun little things for children to do. Um, ironically, the, the next target is pinball. Uh, the next target is pinball. Uh, if you go over one, if you see, yeah, sorry, don't go over one slide. Just go to that same slide where you see a little skee ball thing. That's a very early pinball thing. It's a really early pinball, almost like a skee ball thing. Uh the coin operators are successfully convinced their critics that pinball is a game of skill, not chance, and the balls that they won are only worth more play time uh generally in pinball whenever you you know you get enough points or whenever you do a shot well enough to you know earn earn something you know, basically if you if you show enough skill, all you're earning is another ball, so it's not really money uh so they basically say this is not gambling because there's really no chance involved you can get really good at it, and the only thing you're winning is more balls. Uh, compare this to something like pachinko. Pachinko is a Japanese format of pinball, which is very much gambling because the balls actually have a value. In pachinko, you kind of... It's not really quite pinball because you're not really flipping the flippers or anything, but you're just, like, kind of spinning a crank, balls go down, and you might win more balls. Uh, this also results in the emphasis on tickets to be exchanged for prizes and having to be based upon skill. You know, this idea that, you know, when you go to a carnival... You don't win prizes directly, you might win tickets, or, you know, you, you don't win money. Specifically, you win prizes, or especially things like tickets. That's, that's the big thing you might win at a lot of these carnivals, is tickets. Even though I should mention it is totally carny scamming, uh, pretty much all these games are rigged in one form or another. That's something you're going to see later on with early arcade machines, is the idea that it is somewhat rigged, so you can't... There are hard limits put in place, so you can't just go all day based on skill. Our uh, next bit is pinball. If you go over one slide, pinball is way older than you might think. Uh, there's evidence that our modern perception of pinball actually comes around 1750 in France. Um, there's a mechanical version of billiards variant called bagatelle, where the goal is not to hit stuff. If you see, for instance, there's a bagatelle table. That is an old French version of bagatelle. Uh, the goal of that game is not to hit things. Basically, you, you like you hit the pool ball, and you're trying to like bounce off things without hitting other balls. Not like regular pool where you want to hit the balls and knock them into the pocket. Uh, In Bagatelle, it's basically the skill is not hitting anything else. Uh, Later on, if you go more, they have Bagatelle cabinets. Bagatelle cabinets come around. It's a variation where basically they make this a stick version. Um, Sorry, uh, a cabinet version. It's not quite, you know, the old Bagatelle because you're not really trying to avoid the balls. You're trying to Basically pull the crank, uh, kind of hit it, almost like a pool cue, and get it to land where you want it to. Get it to land where you want it to, which is basically in the high-value point coin slots right there. That's a Bagatelle cabinet, fairly old, fairly old. Uh, you know, like I said, around 1750 is where some of these come around. Uh, the modern coin-operated pinball table, though, what we know about it is it comes with baffle ball in 1931. If you go over one slide, you will see baffle ball, where you get seven balls for a penny. Uh, it's akin to baseball. It's akin to baseball, except um, you know, there's really no way to maneuver the ball after it's shot. Uh, entirely mechanical, designed to uh, sit on a countertop. And as you can see, it's quite popular in the Depression. We talked earlier in the semester about how the Great Depression really was a high time for cheap amusements. This is no exception. Yeah, theoretically, you're just trying to get the high score you possibly can. Um you know, it's a little amusement. That's what I can't, I can't, I can't. You know, downplay that. It's very much an amusement thing. Now, this would go and this would change once you get into electronics, entering into pinball. If you go over one side, you're going to see pinball in the 50s. Uh, once there's like lights and sounds and then mechanics, uh, this mechanicals start coming around. Even in the 30s, um, pinball manufacturing actually centers around Chicago, and it's one of those industries that actually grows during the Depression. You know. Shortly after baffle ball, they're able to figure out how to include electronics and lights and stuff into pinball. And it's one of those things that grow during the Great Depression. However, during World War II, uh, most pinball manufacturers turned to wartime production. But after World War II um, ended, more Americans were keen on having pinball and other amusements. Now, the big change of pinball uh, came into play in 1947 with the introduction of flippers. With the introduction of flippers, this totally changes everything in the pinball game. Uh, pinball can now be legitimately said to be a uh, a game of skill. Uh, you know, you you have to time your shots with the flippers. You can have a little bit of skill. If you're really good at you know pinball, you can make you know one ball last hours if you're quite good at it. There's different ways around it. Likewise, it's in the 50s where you have your first pinball parlors really coming about. Pinball parlors come about for the first time. If you look, you will see one of these 1950s pinball parlors. Um, heavily dependent upon the good economy of the 1950s, very heavily dependent upon the good economy of the 1950s, and also a growing number of children with a disposable income. Uh, this is the time of the baby boomers. Time of the baby boomers. Uh, they have money. You know, well, they have more money than children have ever had before. Not that they have jobs or anything, but their parents have more money. And because everything is fairly good in the 50s for the United States, uh, their parents are willing to spend quite a bit of money on them. And so these pinball parlors start popping up everywhere. Uh, throughout the 60s and 70s, uh, pinball remains a niche market, but it's popular. It, it's popular, uh, still kind of niche, but it's it's kind of ubiquitous. People don't really center their identity around it, not like other amusements later on. Uh, But it was not uncommon to see pinball in bars, restaurants, bowling alleys, grocery stores, college campuses, things like that. But this really starts to change in 1978 with the introduction of one game, and that is Space Invaders. That's the first real big arcade game. If you go over one slide, we're going to talk about uh, early video games. And the development of video games mirrors that of computers. Pretty much as soon as a new technology was developed, they figured out a way to play games upon it. Uh, during World War II, as you can see by this World War II computer, uh, computers are massive, and they're mainly used for code cracking. Uh, they're they're not that many of them. They're insanely large, very heavy, uh, mainly used for things like code cracking, things like that. They're, they're still not quite letting computers do logistics, but they do use them for code cracking. Uh, despite you know the, their their sheer size and they're being used for a very specialized thing. Uh, the users figure out how to play tic-tac-toe and other like very basic games on them and this also results in the development of very 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 primitive artificial intelligence capable of making its own decisions albeit very limited uh for instance um the 19 sorry in the world war ii the computer programmers such as they were they were able to you know get a computer to play tic-tac-toe but it would never make good moves if that makes sense like It didn't know how to really play tic-tac-toe. Pretty much the best it could do was, like, it would put an X or an O down. But it didn't, like, know strategy. Like, it didn't know, like, oh, hey, you know, this person's about to get a tic-tac-toe. Let me block them. Like, it didn't know that much. But it could do that. Still, the development of artificial intelligence, such as we know it, is very linked to 1940s and 50s gamers. Um, You just cannot divorce artificial intelligence from video games. Uh, Computer development, particularly artificial intelligence... Is deeply, deeply, deeply enmeshed with the video game, uh, such as it was at this time period. These very early games. Uh, this changes. Um, most of these games are training devices. You know, basically, they're like, hey, you know, we're going to get you used to this com- You know, to this giant computer by playing tic tac toe, and it gets you kind of used to you know dealing with it with something you understand. But in 1962, some programmers at MIT make the first true video games such as it was, which is Space War. All right, there you'll see these you'll see two nerds from MIT playing Space War. Uh, it's a two-player spaceship battle to be played on mainframe computers, which are very pricey computers. Uh, theoretically it was done on two separate monitors. Um, it was the best way to describe it is fun-ish. Uh fun-ish. It's not really fun per se, but it was more just a wow proof of concept. Uh only a handful of people played it because most computers were too expensive and not powerful enough for the general public. Like they're very expensive, very hard to come by. You know, unless you're like in a college or a military training institute, uh, you're not going to be have access to a computer. And if you do have access to a computer, you probably should be doing more important things on it than um, making computer games on it. But as the '60s went on, uh, parts became cheaper, and more universities started to get them. Uh, the space race and the influence on STEM really meant that the U.S. across the board was interested in getting colleges anything computer-related. So basically, more colleges start getting it. You know, now it's not just MIT and other, like, elite, you know, nerd schools. Now, like, pretty much any school is getting a computer with this idea that, you know, across the board, the United States needs to spend more time and energy on science and technology education. And that results in more people getting access to computers. Likewise, computer games start developing pretty quickly. Uh, it's no surprise that colleges are one of the first places where computer games really get big. Now, the big change really happens. The big change really happens in the late 60s when computers become small enough to be plugged into a standard television set. All right, That's what really changes things, and particularly in 1972 when Atari comes out with Pong. Atari is a bit of a revelation. It's very easy to understand, uh, Pong is. It's pretty much ping-pong. Uh, two people could play it on the same screen, unlike Space War, which was two people in separate screens. So you could be in the same room. Uh, 1972, like th- this is a smaller cabinet. So basically, instead of having a big computer mainframe, computers are now cheap enough that you could just have it in a little cabinet. Uh, you know, so you could have it like at a, a store, or a pizza parlor, or honestly, a pinball parlor is where a lot of them come. Uh, even better in 1975. Even better in 1975, the first home video game systems come out. Uh, Pong comes to the home console with one of the home Ataris. Uh, Atari makes this home system available, so basically you can do it on your own regular television. Uh, This makes it much cheaper and much easier to get access, and now this kind of opens the floodgates a little bit. Now this also changes, corresponds with changes in arcades. Um, Most arcades were still viewed as very carny things, even the pinball parlor was viewed as kind of a low class establishment. Uh, with the rise of the you know the arcade machine like a, the video game arcade machine in the in the early '70s with things like Atari and Pong, uh, these new arcade you know video arcades they do things like ban smoking, uh, they ban drinking, uh, they kind of you know let they, they're like look we're going to skew younger. Um, You know, you're not just going to be the proverbial smoke-filled room. If you read accounts of some of these early arcades, like these early pinball parlors, they are disgusting. It's pretty much, you know, just these older folks spending globs of time. Kind of like a, honestly, it's a lot like a casino. A lot like a casino, very smoky, a lot of drinking, uh, kind of in the bad part of town. Now now they're being put up in shopping malls. Uh, Shopping malls. Uh, which are new development. Uh, Maybe I'll talk about shopping malls another time I do this class. That's kind of another new development that's very impactful in pop culture. And so when Space Invaders comes out, if you ever over one side, you'll see Space Invaders. Space Invaders comes out in 78. It's the biggest arcade game of its time. It pretty much makes the video game industry in the United States. Uh, It is not an American company that makes it, by the way. Uh, It's made by Taito, which is a Japanese company. It is licensed in the U.S., however, by Midway. Midway is a company based in Chicago that has very strong pinball and carny roots. Uh, Like I said, it was made by Taito, which was a Japanese company. And I should mention, in time, Japan will become very connected with video games. Uh, More than any other pop culture being tied to something outside of America, uh, video games are something which are seen as very American, very important American, that come primarily from another place, which is Japan. By the late 70s, early 80s, video games seemed to do no wrong. Atari and other systems were coming out in the home. They're getting cheaper, and the graphics, you know, although the graphics are pretty primitive now, they're believed to be very impressive. Um, Two of the biggest uh, releases that come out in this time period, and by the way, I should mention, the home arcade machines looked significantly worse than the uh, arcade machines. That is a truism in video games for quite a while. It's not until fairly recently well, not fairly recently, well, within your lifetimes, I'd say about the mid-2000s, so 2005, 2006, where the idea that the home video game system looks as good, if not better, than the arcade machine. Uh, One of the biggest early arcade games is Pac-Man, 1980. Pac-Man is just a huge release, a ginormous release during this time period, is is Pac-Man. Pac-Man becomes like a true... Gosh. It's also put up on Midway. It's a true like cultural phenomenon. You have songs, video games, children's serials. Uh, later, Midway... Well, it's not even Midway. I, a group of hackers makes Miss Pac-Man, which improves the game. It actually makes it a little bit harder, adds a little bit more variety to it, and basically Midway licenses it. And that becomes kind of interesting as well. If you have one slide, you're going to see the home systems. Here's some early home system. Um, Here's like the Atari. It's which in 1980-something money is like a few thousand dollars in today money. Um, It's amazing just how expensive they are, but, no, it's pretty expensive. It's pretty expensive, but uh, the economy's doing okay, and so people can't afford it. The problem is, in 1982, though, uh, the video game system crashes very, very, very hard, Uh, mainly due to overproduction and the machines being underpowered uh, compared to arcade machines. Uh, the arcade's doing okay, but home video games like really crash very hard because there's this overproduction. Too many companies are getting involved in it. The games are not that much different. They look like garbage compared to the, uh, to the arcade machines. The home, the home video game systems look like garbage compared to the arcade machines. Also, there is the E.T. debacle. Um, E.T., if you go over one side, in 1982, that's a big movie that comes out, E.T., uh, basically, Atari's like, "Hey, we want to make a video game for this." They, the programmers, were like, "Yeah, hey, we can do it in two months." They probably shouldn't have. Um, it was advertised as being this, you know, great game. Uh, the problem is, if you go over one side, you'll see what it actually looked like, which was hot garbage. It looked terrible, and actually played even worse. Uh, Atari lost a ton of money on this. They actually overproduced copies of ET because they thought it was going to be a big seller because of, the, you know, it's the popularity of the movie. It was so many that this was a myth for a long time until they confirmed it. They actually buried them in a landfill in um, the middle of the desert in Arizona. They pretty much got several hundred thousand copies of E.T. that didn't sell and just buried many of them in the desert. So now the home video game system looks fairly dead, and weirdly enough, it's actually going to be resurrected not by an American company, but by a Japanese company, which is Nintendo. Everyone's slide. Nintendo is a much older company than you might think. It's actually started in 1989 as a playing card company by Fuzujiro Yamamuchi. It's a very niche market as a playing card company, but it's doing okay. It's really not, you know, it's, nothing, it's not really doing anything to write home about. Uh, by the time you get to 1985, you go, uh, they make playing cards. You see there, there's some of their old Nintendo playing cards. Um, by the time you get to 1985, uh, Yamamuchi's grandson Hiroshi, well, Fusajiro's grandson, Hiroshi, had taken over the company and really wants to expand the market. You can see Hiroshi right there on the left. He's very young in that picture. Uh, He he wants to expand its market. He's like, look, you know, playing cards are are fine, but maybe we can find other things to do. Uh, He wants to expand Nintendo into other fields, and he's really trying everything. He's really trying everything. He tries food services, taxis, a TV channel, love hotels, Ask me about that privately. Uh, <laughs> that's a Japanese thing. Uh, but nothing really stucks. But they did find some success in the coin amusement business in the 1960s. Yeah, you know, it's it's still kind of this early, you know, Japanese coin amusement, not full video games yet, but just kind of like things like love testers and things like that. And it's a natural progression that they'd get into home, sorry, they'd get into video game machines, arcade games once they came along. A lot of you company, US companies did too. Uh their first really successful early game. Well, the first <laughs> their first Nintendo, their first uh, arcade game is Space Fever, which is a total ripoff of Space Invaders. that's okay. A lot of companies did that. A lot of companies do that. Um, now they're they're actually successful enough in the early eighties. They they entered into talks to develop a licensed Popeye game. They for some reason they were they were interested in Popeye. They wanted to make a Popeye arcade game. But uh, basically, the talks fall through. They couldn't get the licensing right. But still, there's a young, uh, hired designer at Nintendo, a guy by the name of Shigeru Miyamoto. Miyamoto is like, you know what? I kind of want to make my own version of Popeye. He wants to make his own version of Popeye. He's like, look, we can't get the Popeye we want, but we can kind of like make a Popeye game with kind of our own characters, and that becomes Donkey Kong. Uh, Donkey Kong comes out in 1981. It is a very thinly veiled analogy for Popeye. You've probably never thought of Mario as Popeye, but Donkey Kong is Bluto, Olive Oil is Daisy, and Mario is Popeye. Pretty much that's the dynamic they want. Uh, Had Nintendo gotten the license for Popeye, we'd probably never heard about Mario. Actually, it was called Jumpman at this time period. So that's going pretty okay for Nintendo. They're, They're kind of expanding into other things. And so in 1985, even while, if you go over one slide, even while the home video game market was crashing around the world, Nintendo actually releases its own system called the Famicom, which is short for Family Computer in Japanese. In the United States, they just call it the Nintendo Entertainment System or the NES. Uh, The first game that really came out for the Nintendo, if you go over one slide, is... An extension of Donkey Kong, minus the title ape, instead focuses on the character of Jumpman, who's now called Mario. Uh, There have been some Mario arcade games that came out beforehand. And the game that came out, Super Mario Brothers, was a total revelation. Uh, The game was, the game at, it was a game at home that looked comparable to the games in the arcades. And actually, in some cases, it actually looked better. Uh, The game was not deep, sorry, the game was deep, it was bundled with a new system, and pretty much single-handedly brought back not just Nintendo, but home video games in general. Now, Miyamoto kind of follows us up the next year with a game called The Legend of Zelda. This is an even bigger game. It's a much more epic game that really pulls upon Miyamoto's childhood of exploring caves and the like in the countryside. In fact, in particular, he said that there was like this cave he liked, you know, and it got paved over and they got turned into like a pinball arcade. And so he's like, yeah, I'll start playing pinball. So he's like, huh. So it's kind of drawing upon this this Japanese nostalgia for the past they once had kind of a, a countryside that was taken over by technology, this sort of idea. And so with games like that, Nintendo really starts to dominate the competition and really dominates the late 80s. Now I bet you're wondering, why Japan? Why Japan? Well, by this time, a new generation of Japanese had come of age uh, who didn't really get into the militarism of their World War II parents. You know, by the time we get into the 80s, people born after World War II uh, or people who are young during World War II, Japanese people who are young, uh, they're in their 30s and they don't really remember the war and they don't really get into like the whole, you know, hooray of the warism. Also, the US, I should mention, is trying to support Japanese manufacturing as a Cold War deterrent. So the US is actually pumping a lot of money into Japan. Uh, they don't think that it's necessarily competition. They're like, hey, we'll buy your stuff because they don't want J- Japan to go to the communist. So what ends up happening is that most video game production shifts from the United States to Japan, where Japan looks to be like a dominant creative genius compared to the more lagging U.S. companies. And this continues to be the case seemingly into this day. Uh, most, if not all, big games come from Japan. Uh, two of the major console major makers are still housed there. Uh, Nintendo and Sony are both housed in Japan. Uh, Microsoft, who makes the Xbox, is housed in the United States. A lot of big video games come from Japan. Yes, I am more coming from America. Also, with something like Ubisoft is more coming from Europe. But the other question is, why does the United States take so well to the home arcade system? Well, I think it's kind of akin to something like a wrestling pay-per-view in that it allows a bit of distance from deviant behavior. Uh, despite several efforts... Um, Gaming tends to be viewed as an outside deviant behavior. It's something that you don't normally do at the home. It's basically you go to some place that's quite deviant. Uh, for instance, if you go one side, you'll see things like the mall arcade. That was kind of presented as like, oh, this is the more professional atmosphere. Likewise, one of the guys in charge of Atari makes showbiz pizza. If you later Chuck E. Cheese, you can click the YouTube link right there to see, oh, just the animatronics involved there. Uh, it was trying to basically kind of Strip it from its more deviant side, but the idea of going out to these places to play arcade games—if you go over one slide, you're going to see this idea that they are a deviant behavior. It's something that was like not really encouraged, not really uh, something looked forward upon. You know, basically the idea that they are wasting their lives going away to these places. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see this "quote unquote" seedy arcade. Um, you know, it's just kind of this grimy place. There are people kissing. I haven't noticed that picture part of the picture before, but okay, well, I guess that happens at arcade too. Uh, but now that arcade, you know, that gaming could be done in a, in the home, to, if a comparable graphics environment, it was deemed more acceptable. It also allows parents more control over child consumption and turning, quote unquote, bad influences. Uh, still, there is the idea that uh, video ga- uh, arcade machines look better, but uh, home arcade machines could be more cleanly, uh, more more sanitary, more health, you know, better for the health of the child. By the time we get to the 90s, uh, the line between home and arcade video games had gone to almost nothing. Uh, for instance, if you go over one side, you'll see Street Fighter II. Uh, Street Fighter II came out in 1991. It was the last great, quote-unquote, arcade machine release. Uh, but within one year, it had uh, ports that came out the year later on the home video game system, and uh, that pretty much stayed the case. That pretty much stayed the case. Likewise, uh, Polygon, you know, 3D games, start coming to the home as well. So this is the idea that, you know what, eh, things are coming a little bit better. Uh, you know, it, it, the price point stays the same with games. They actually effectively become cheaper due to inflation. Uh, most home video games have had the $60 price point since, like, the 80s. Uh, I've heard for the PS5 generation it might be going up to $70. And this is also connected very well. Uh, in 1993, a game comes out on a computer called Doom. Uh, which is theoretically better than anything seen in arcades. Anything seen in arcades, it seems the most best graphics that possibly exist. And it's also very connected to the rise of something like the Internet. Uh, Doom is a very early mainstay of early online gaming. Now, the Internet, like if you go over one slide, like arcade machines, they are way older than you might expect. Uh, the first version of the modern Internet is ARPANET. If you look at the picture, you'll see ARPANET. Um, it was designed to allow for the transfer of military information over distances. Very Cold War and very, very, very limited number. If you look at 1969, you're going to see there are only four stations. So the ARPANET was just four stations, uh, most of which are based around California. There's one in Utah, but that's about it. By the, by the time you get to like 1974, only a few dozen different stations exist. Uh, mainly military and like elite university types. Uh, it exists to have a standard computer language. Before this time, a lot of universities, uh, particularly military institutions, have their own like computer language. Uh, but the main reason, so they like, man, they want to have a more universal language. But the main reason was to have decentralized information for security reasons. So in case like the Russians nuke, um, you know, one military station, it's not like all the information is lost. By the time we get, you can see the map to like 1977, the early 80s, there's a lot more stations. There's a lot more stations, still fairly limited, still fairly limited, still very much based around California and some on the East Coast. By the time we get to the 80s, though, it's a few hundred stations, very much linked to college campuses. By the time we get to the late 80s, ARPANET had pretty much done its job, uh, pretty much had entirely done its job, uh, and it looked like it was going to close. And it would be replaced by other networks. Pretty much ARPANET is in its job, Uh, you know, there's enough connection, most of the military thing had been spread around. Likewise, by the time we get to the late 80s, uh, you know, the Cold War's over, so we don't need it that much. Also, I should mention, pretty early people started spending just, like, non-work-related messages on ARPANET because they could. Uh, So this is some of your first emails, it's just messages that were theoretically supposed to be for military, you know, or educational purposes. They're just, uh, you know, kind of goofing, you know, wasting time at work. That's something everybody does. (laughs) And they also start playing games. Uh, Text-based adventures were particularly popular, as well as some of the things like bulletin board groups. If you go over one slide, you'll see in 1985 that the World Wide Web was introduced. Um, It's more than ARPANET or an internet. By the way, the term internet implies internal uh, the World Wide Web was a universal set of language that anybody around the world could use. It didn't have to be connected to this internal, very military-grade network. It allowed for it, people to int- to put in addresses for information and not depend upon access to a particular institution. Uh, most universities already had some form of an intranet. Intranet is like an internal network that's used for things like scheduling or uh, scheduling is a big one. But just like you know, keeping university information kind of straight, uh, because of the World Wide Web, because of like new things like uh, new new languages, you don't have to be like at, on the university's campus to look at it. This gets bigger in 1990 with the introduction of hypertext, which allows other files to get addresses fairly easily. Uh, I remember one of the first times I ever saw the internet, and yes, I can remember when I first saw the internet. This would have been in 1991. In 1991, my grandfather, or not my grandfather, my godfather, I should say, not my grandfather. My grandfather didn't care about the Internet. But my godfather, brilliant man, uh, he was like, hey, Stuart, you got to come see this. And he called me in, and he was looking at a library in France. He's like, look, this is what this library in France looks like. Like, I can look at their card catalog. I was like, okay, I don't really care. It just looks like text. It's like, no, you don't get this. Like, this is like I'm in their, you know, it'd be like I'm in their building looking at their card catalog. But I'm, I'm here in America. And he was just all excited about that. So all this makes the internet really mushroom tremendously. Uh, And by the way, cheaper prices for computers and home online providers start getting really big. This is mainly like the economy's going well, computers getting faster and cheaper, and they get a heck of a lot better. So early ISPs, home computing, I should mention, had been around for a while now, mainly DOS, but you also have some Apple devices. Uh, They're actually comparably priced to today, but you have to include inflation. So like back then, a computer was a few thousand dollars. But you have to account for inflation, so it's a lot more expensive. And early on, some users, typically through colleges or the military, start using bulletin boards and other user groups. Basically, you, know, you can kind of, like, pass information along. Unsurprisingly, the content tends to shift towards nerd culture and also sex. Um, I mean, don't act so surprised. People using it tend to be nerdy and in the STEM fields, but they're still human beings. Um... Yeah, you know, they, they yes, they are interested in talking about nerd stuff like Star Trek or whatever, but also you know dating and girls and boys and you know doing the thing that makes other people. Uh, that happens quite early. However, this time it really wasn't making a lot of culture of its own, but rather reflecting the culture of others. Now, two of the first really big online providers are CompuServe and um, Prodigy. Now, if you go over one side, you'll see CompuServe. CompuServe, you haven't really heard too much about. Likewise, Prodigy was pretty much a, a DOS one. You are most likely to see Prodigy. Um, AOL is the first like, really, really big-time provider. Um, they tend to take what's called a walled garden approach, which is basically like they have their own content, look at it. They don't really allow that much access to the wider internet. Uh, to be fair, though, early on, most, most people were just interested in email and message boards. Uh, that was the main draws. Uh, the internet itself needed an outside browser, since AOL and CompuServe didn't really use HTTP, which is still used a lot for the internet. Um, I remember whenever we first got the internet at our house, like big time internet, because when I saw it, my godfather's that was he was like Mister Computer, so like you know not normal people would not get that. But I remember in 1995, my sister went to Wales as a foreign exchange student, and long distance cost a fortune at that time period. And so my parents were all excited whenever my sister was like, look, there's this thing called email now, and you could, like, write me a letter on your computer and just send it, and I'll get it for absolutely free. And it's instantaneous, like, as soon as you send it, I can get it, so you don't have to worry about the eight-hour time difference between um, Louisiana and Wales. And so we could write to her, we don't have to worry about, like, you know, long-distance lines, and, you know, what time is it for her, figuring it all out. And it's it's uh, it's it's a... And I remember my parents being all excited about this. And in general, it's a wild west for the online world. Like, it's pretty freewheeling. Um, nobody really knows what's going to happen to the internet. They know it has the potential to be something big, possibly universal, but it um, kind of needs to expand and get its own footing. If you go over one side, you're going to see the internet cafe um, kind of help offset the cost of owning a computer and a modem, as well as libraries starting to digitize. Uh, the Internet Cafe is not something we necessarily have nowadays. It's this idea where, like, basically if you buy a latte, you get to spend, like, one hour online. Uh, because these computers are so expensive in this time period, likewise, online access is also very expensive. I remember we had CompuServe for quite a while whenever I was a kid, and I want to say the monthly subscription was about, uh, it was less than 24 hours a month you could be on it. Like, I remember it being very particular about how long you could be on CompuServe. And I cannot iterate this enough. Uh, the early 90s were a very fragile time for the Internet. It was very segmented, also very freewheeling in terms of copyright and payment. Uh, this is kind of where you have the wild west of the Internet, like, just do what you want. it, You don't necessarily have to pay. Uh, two big things happened around 1995. Uh, the first, if you go over one slide, is the release of Windows 95. Uh, if you want to watch the most 90s things ever, click on that YouTube link. You're going to see Jennifer Aniston and Matthew Perry. Talking about Windows 95. Don't watch the entire thing, it's like an hour. I don't want to bore you you that much. But Windows 95 was an operating system which was based heavily around web browsing. It included Internet Explorer, which was actually the source of an antitrust lawsuit for Microsoft later on. But it was also considerably less buggy than earlier versions of Windows, and actually comparable in stability to DOS. And although Apple was still around, it was not what it once was, nor what it would be. I should mention that Apple gets much bigger later. In this time period, Apple's kind of an also-ran. So this idea with Windows 95, by the way, nerds were so happy about this. It's the idea that it was built with the Internet in mind. For the longest time, uh, GUIs, which is the graphical user interfaces, were viewed as less stable than something like DOS, which is more just like lines of text. Uh, That really helps out. Uh, the, the second thing that happens, and I really don't have a... Oh yeah, if you go over one side, you're going to see Internet Explorer, which uh, now looks like hot garbage, but uh, <laughs> at the time it was kind of a revelation. You had other Internet Explorers, which sorry, Internet browsers, which were much more stable, like Netscape or whatever, but still, this was viewed as a big deal. Uh, the second big thing that happens in the 90s is the introduction of the MP3. Uh, the MP3, basically, it's a compression of a of a song file, it's able to condense music to a much smaller size without that much loss of sound quality. And by doing so, it became more feasible to send music over dial-up connections, so Napster and stuff come in pretty quick. This is get what gets a lot of people online. Uh, by the way, the CD-ROM is also more ubiquitous in this time period, which is much larger than floppies. This makes things progress more quickly. Uh, you cannot downplay the importance of the MP3 of getting people online. Uh... You know, this is also the time period where most Americans got online because of things like Windows 95 being, you know, much more stable and having the internet ingrained into it. Likewise, the MP3 being something you can get fairly well, free, you're stealing <laughs> for free without much loss of sound quality. I cannot iterate how popular MP3s were uh, for a while. I guess the best way I could say it is more people were like Google searching or the equivalent, they didn't have Google at time, here, but they're searching on the web for MP3. More than things like sex and like beer, like bigger than sex and violence was this idea for music. So more Americans are getting online. Companies like Yahoo, eBay, and Netscape get quite large, and the internet is growing slowly more stream, more mainstream, kind of akin to how television was in the fifties. If you think about that, you know, in, by the beginning of the fifties, only like one percent of Americans have a TV. By the end of the fifties, about ninety percent of Americans have a TV. Internet's kind of like that in the 90s. By the early 90s, most Americans don't have the internet. By the time we get to the end 90s, uh, about 90% plus, if they don't have the internet in their house, they have fairly, you know, easy access to it. They can go to a library or something which is nearby. Now, the impact on pop culture, this is where it gets a little bit more complex, and there's sadly no pictures that go along with this. Because it's very hard to overstate the impact that the internet has had on pop culture in many ways it's become the dominant form of pop culture. It's a synthesis of almost everything that's come before it. Indeed, pretty much from early pretty much everything from early pop culture is available for free or cheap online. I mean, think about it throughout this course, I've used tons of pictures and videos of earlier pop culture from the internet. That was the medium from which they saw it. Uh, very rarely in this class, I don't think at all in this class that I, like, give you a tangible book or something. I don't think anything can rival the archival capacity of the Internet. Nothing can rival the archival capacity of the Internet. It's also, uh, like, totally transforming communications. I know it's cliche, and, you know, it's something you don't think about, but the ability to have, like, instantaneous, accurate information from literally anywhere is something beyond comprehension for most of human history. Like the idea that you could like literally whip out your phone or type on your laptop, like any subject, and almost instantaneously have like fairly accurate information from not just like nearby, but everywhere in the world. In that same vein, there's more direct communication between the audience and creator than ever before. One thing we talked about early in this class is this concept of patronage and the idea that, you know, an artist may or may not be aware of who their patron is, who their audience is. And a lot of times in early pop culture, you don't, you know, if you're making a TV show or a radio show, you don't necessarily know who's watching your show. But now, good God, you know, the creator and, and, the, uh, and the audience, they're more connected than they've ever been before. If something is unpopular, fans can let it be known immediately and, repa- and the creators can respond oftentimes by name. Like, I'm sure you've seen like a creator like name check their haters or whatever. Another trend is the normalization of seemingly outlying su- uh, subcultures. Uh, nerd culture in particular has become dominant. I would say nerd culture has become the dominant form of pop culture. Think Marvel movies, Star Wars, video games, etc. Um, that is something very tied to the internet. I mean, I call this lecture the geek shall inherit the earth. In that way, the geeks have inherited pop culture. I mean, pretty much the dominant pop culture now is stuff that was previously seen as I don't want to say deviant, but outside the norm. But because the internet is so ubiquitous and everybody uses it, things that were popular with the early internet users now become more common. Uh, same thing with dating. I mean, if think about it with dating, um, imagine you're about to go on a date with somebody. Not quite a blind date, but like you're going to go on a first date. You guarantee you're going to check out their entire social media presence. You're going to look for everything they got on the Facebook and Twitter and their Instagram and you're going to find out their secret you know their secret accounts, whatever you want to find out everything you can, and you wouldn't consider that. you wouldn't consider not doing that, I should say, uh, before this time period. I mean those are just two very basic examples. I mean, just think people who previously saw them thought of themselves as alone have found virtual communities and given them more support than is normally available I mean LGBT folks LGBT folks, the internet is a godsend because they don't feel as alone but you also have stupid things like furries you know you have stupid people who get together and figure out um, who they are based on the internet and they feel like they're not alone yeah you know, so yes it's a powerful tool i mean especially uh, you know for a lgbt person in a very isolated rural community the internet has to be a godsend because just you know they actually feel like they're not alone but it's also allowed for more insulation. It's it's easier to become trapped in a bubble. Uh, this idea that you know you can be just involved in one subculture, just involved in your particular interest, and kind of blind yourself to the outside world. In addition, I should mention uh, the metaculture, like this kind of the uh, the omniculture, has suffered tremendously. Like for most of this class, we talked about like hey, you know, there's this kind of like larger American pop culture dynamic, particularly with all the new technologies like TV and radio and things. But now you get to the point with the internet, where basically there is no monoculture. There is no like larger narrative in play here. There's this diversity, which there's nothing wrong with diversity, but it's also harder to get a grasp on like what is the tenor of America as a whole. This is not to say that America has always been unified. Far from it, but it definitely changed the way we discuss about things. It might become more complex to be fully comprehended. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Well, that's for you to talk about in your final exam. <laughs> but I think I'm going to end there for the class. I think I'm going to end there for the semester. This idea that we we have more capacity than we've ever had before. We've got more variety than ever before, but have we lost some of the potency by it just being so broad? Well, I want you all to think about that whenever we talk about this. So, is that, Dr. Telly. Bye.